Summertime is heating up at Global Voice Broadcasting. Hot music, hot talk, and hot topics. All day, every day, 24-7. You don't want to miss a minute on Global Voice Broadcasting. My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin. A spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. When you're surrounded by people who share a passionate commitment around a common purpose, anything is possible. Howard Schultz. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I am so with Mr. Schultz on this one. Passion can be a superpower in our lives and relationships. Today, we are going to explore ways to infuse it into monogamy and other juicy topics with one of my favorite sex and relationship experts, who happens to be a very dear friend of mine as well, Kate Scalisi. Kate, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So excited. Oh, and listeners have heard you before. Yes. Actually, last year. Mm-hmm. It was a year ago, almost exactly. Yeah, you shared fantastic tips. It's so fun to have you actually in the studio. So for anyone who's new to your work, tell us about it. Yeah. So like many people who do this work, I wear many hats. So I am a sex educator and writer and coach. But regardless of what I'm doing, whether I'm working, you know, one-on-one with women in long-term relationships, doing coaching or teaching at colleges, training healthcare providers or sex therapists, writing, it doesn't matter. All of my work is about creating more freedom and pleasure. And when I talk about that, obviously, it's the freedom to even experience pleasure because for so many of us, that's kind of at a very young age, pleasure is beginning to be demonized. But it's also freedom from body image issues and worrying about what you look like and freedom from worrying about your sexual health and freedom from the shame and embarrassment so many of us feel around sex and our desires and speaking up about them. Beautiful. I love that mission so much. And I'm such a fan of your work, which people can find at Passion by Kate, K A I T. Mm-hmm. And if you misspell it, it all redirects, thankfully. So. Oh, excellent. <laughs> yes. That's really good to know. Um, before we dive into our main topic mm-hmm. uh, of passionate monogamy, which I totally love that phrase, I thought we'd dip into a couple of other hot topics. Let's do it. And some of them totally relate. I think so much of this is really connected. Um, But one comes from a listener. We always have a listener question, and this one is from M. First, we're going to hear from Dr. Megan, greatlifegreatsex.com, our wonderful resident expert. And then I'd love to hear what Kate has to say as well. And it's about sex frequency, which Mm -hmm. is such an interesting topic and I think one that a lot of people wonder about. So thank you for asking this, M. M wrote this, my husband and I have been married for three years, together five, and are in our early 30s. And yet, our marriage is practically sexless. We We had sex fairly often at the beginning of our relationship, but within a year or two, it slowed to a near halt. We've talked about it and are both actually okay with it. That said, we both occasionally wonder if it's normal and healthy to not have sex more often. Is this common, normal, okay, or something that needs fixing? We're emotionally and physically intimate in other ways. Can that be enough? Such a good question. Mm-hmm. Here is what Dr. Megan Fleming had to say. Um, um, I just want to really thank you for this question. And I imagine there are so many others listening that are going to thank you too. You know, it's funny. There was a time in uh, sort of my academic sort of career in clinical life that I used to really know the latest research and statistics and could quote to you, quote unquote, what was normal uh, based on the latest studies, you know, like data from the National Social Health and Life Survey. But, you know, in time, I began to realize the data doesn't really matter because it isn't really about the comparison of what works for another couple. It's about what works for you. And I think that you both get to define what's normal. And even from a, you know, a clinical perspective, a diagnosis, you know, more recently we, we've added this uh, criteria called personal distress. 
if someone is not distressed by a lack of desire, then I cannot diagnose hypoactive sexual desire disorder. Part of the criteria is the fact that there's personal distress. So what I'm kind of hearing you say is for both of you, you're sort of curious, you know, quote unquote, is this normal? But it really doesn't matter what that bell curve distribution, you know, one, two standard deviations means. It's really what works and is normal for both of you. And the fact that you both feel like you're on the same page, and I feel and hear you say about the intimacy, the connection, all the ways your needs are getting met, um, to me, that's the most important thing in that, you know, listen, I think it has to be an ongoing topic of conversation to make sure that you both continue to be on the same page. Um, because, you know, I think it's human nature to seek comfort and closeness and stability. And that often is not necessarily the birthplace of sort of eroticism, which sometimes can need space or adventure. And listen, every couple is individual and different. But, you know, there's a part of me that says, have you been curious? Have you tried together, you know, with the safety and security of your relationship to go out on that tightrope and, you know, sort of venture into the unknown and pushing your boundaries? And is that a turn on? Or are you just kind of really happy and content? Um, the key takeaway I can say here is that, listen, like most couples, you start off having uh, sex more frequently and you know, that's the romantic phase, that's the dopamine, that's the oxytocin, it's great, but that's meant to end. And once it ends, you know, if you both sort of feel like you're on the same page and your needs are getting met, to me, that's your normal and that's all that matters. So listen, the only thing I can say here is it's great that you're, um, it sounds like you're enjoying each other's company, you're physically intimate in other ways, celebrate all the ways in which your needs are and do get met and just keep that conversation open because as from my perspective as long as you're on the same page it's totally normal but you just want to be aware of when and if for whatever reason one of you at some point might feel differently then I think that's a different conversation and check in with me because I'm happy to help you and guide you through that too. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. I loved that. Kate and I are both like holding our squeals because we agree. And um, I hope that was helpful for you. I love this question so much because as a writer, too, I get really frustrated when I see it's it's like the orgasm statistics that turn into a headline. It's like a game uh -huh. of telephone. It gets passed around. <laughs> and I've seen articles lately that actually say like verbatim, you know, happy couples have sex once a week. And it's uh -huh. like, what does that mean? I mean, what is this this happy couple that has this schedule? You know, yeah. it, it, it's so finding your own normal. Mm -hmm. Kate, what would you add? Yeah, one of the things that I have started saying a lot lately is that when it comes to sex, there is no such thing as normal. There's more common and less common, certainly. But I really like that, you know, Dr. Megan addressed that from the start of, yes, the research can give us an idea of what's more common, but more common doesn't necessarily mean normal for you. And so... A couple of things that kind of came to mind as Dr. Megan was talking within the question is, again, finding your normal is so important. And if you aren't distressed about it, whether it's having sex every single night or twice a day or having sex once every couple months or weeks or whatever, as long as you and your partner are happy at the end of the day, no one else gets to put on your relationship what is healthy and normal and happy obviously with some very large exceptions, of course. But um, the other thing is that so many of us, our narratives around sex are that, you know, what you like when you first start having sex is you just kind of keep liking that forever, or maybe you add things to it. But really, our bodies and our desires change so much as we get older, as we go through stressful times, if you have children, chronic illness, just so many different freaking things. And so it may be that the things that felt really yummy in the past no longer do. And so I would also be curious, like Dr. Megan said, have they been exploring other ways to be intimate? Sounds like they have. And maybe that is their form of sex right now, right? And so even thinking about like, what does sex actually mean? And so I'm someone, you know, she specific, M specifically mentions they're still physically intimate. In many ways, I would probably still count that as sex because if you are sharing some sort of physical intimacy with someone, whether it's a really yummy back rub or foot rub or just cuddling or whatever, I still count that as, as sex, quite frankly, beyond just like penis and vagina or penis in some body part 
Um, it just that's that's not all that sex is. I love that. It's so interesting because it still is so ingrained in many of us that mm-hmm. it has to be intercourse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that we're assuming that that quote unquote normal is having intercourse exactly. once a week. And some of the people replying to those surveys might be having oral or mm-hmm. might just be cuddling naked or exactly. might, you, you just never know. You never know. And is that also masturbation? Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many different things. And I like what she said about keeping that conversation going, mm-hmm. you know, because I think it's easy to to not keep communicating is that something that you find people struggle with as far oh as gosh, talking yes. about sex? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the women that I've worked with one-on-one through coaching, that you know, they'll say to me, like, I can talk to my partner about anything except sex. And there's this, like, awkward pause, and I could tell they're, like, a little embarrassed about it because a lot of these women, they have these amazing, beautiful, strong partnerships and relationships but they really struggle in the bedroom to talk about what they want, to ask for what they want. And sometimes I, I had one person say to me, like, I'm a big fucking girl. Like, I just need to put my fucking big girl panties on and do this. And I just – I had so much compassion for her because, you know, we put sex on this pedestal. And, you know, I totally want to shout out to Rachel Hills, who we've had on the show before. Um, her work with the sex myth has really helped to kind of ground this idea for me of so many of us put sex on this pedestal as this kind of other thing – that's there. And I think sometimes money comes close to it. So conversations about money between couples can be challenging. But sex is really, it's like a whole different beast. You can, you know, I think even some, one of the questions I got recently was like, what if we try something new and my partner doesn't like it? And I wanted to be like, you go out for dinner sometimes and one or both of you don't like it. And what do you do then? You try a different restaurant or you try a different dish. And it's just, we have so much noise around sex and embarrassment and shame, et cetera that we, we kind of can't often translate the skills that we use in other parts of our relationship into the bedroom. Uh, and so, you know, helping women have those conversations, helping them realize that they already do have these skills and they do know how to do it and they just need someone to guide them. It's, it's one of my favorite things to do. I love that restaurant comparison yeah. because when you talk about it that way, it sounds so easy breezy and there's these other options. Mm-hmm. And aside from drawing it to comparisons and seeing other ways that you do communicate, what are some like first steps that people can take when they're like, this totally freaks me out? Yeah. Owning it, like saying to your partner, I'm kind of nervous to talk to you about this right now, but there's something that's, you know, it's it's I, it's been on my mind. I want to talk to you. And it's okay to stumble through that conversation. I still stumble through it. There have been times where I've like had to like hide under a blanket to tell my partner something about sex. And I do this work for a living, right? Like we all, those of us who are sex educators, same thing with healthcare providers, we still all grew up in this kind of sex negative society and have internalized those messages. And those of us who do this work, we we really have stepped up and said like, okay, like I still have this, but like fuck this, I'm going to do this work. So, you know, it's owning that awkwardness, owning that like, oh, I'm nervous right now is a really good way. You know, it it lets the other person know where you're at. It encourages empathy between the two of you. And it's, again, it's one of those kind of psychology tricks that has been used in so many other areas everywhere in relationships of all kinds that can be really, really helpful. And sometimes just practicing, you know, like, I, I do that sometimes with my coaching clients where they'll be like, I want to talk to them. And I'm not quite sure what to say. And we'll just kind of workshop on how to have that conversation. Um, and then the last thing would be to keep it really simple. And what I mean by that is really focus on one thing out of time. Because for a lot of us, we haven't <laughs> talked to, you know. I totally did that. I remember the first time, as soon as I started talking about sex, I was like yes. a big waterfall. Yes, and I'm exactly. like, let's talk about everything about penis and developments right now. Exactly. And so if you've been wanting to talk to your partner for a while and you haven't, there's usually like 15 different things that you want to talk to them about. And then like you end up, you know, complaining about the, the them not taking the garbage out or something, right? Like you start with point A and you end up at point Z and beyond. Um, And so kind of figuring out like what's the most important for me to talk about right now. And with this, I really like to stress like it's whatever feels in your heart the most. It's not maybe what you should, right? So the example I use is maybe if you have a history of some trauma and you feel like that's what you should tell them about because that's the bigger thing. But maybe there's this new kinky thing you want to try. And right now that feels more important to you like let go of that judgment about what should be yeah. more important and vital and talk to them about what is really feeling really vital and relevant for you right then and there. You just made me think of a Julia Cameron exercise from The Artist's Way, mm. a wonderful book, that 
has this exercise where it's, you know, if I weren't afraid, mm-hmm. what would I do? You know, okay. and not worded exactly like that, but the idea is, you know, if you took away all the shame and judgment mm-hmm. and you're not even think just by yourself, you know, if I had no fear about talking about X or Y or Z with my partner, what what would I want to yeah. say if I could say it? Like what would just come out of me? Mm-hmm. You know? And also we've talked about this before, but having, you know, conversations Outside the bedroom, yes, you know, it's not like mid-coitus, which nothing wrong with that either. No. I usually um, break things down into like the conversations you have during sex and those you have outside of sex. And during sex, there's literally like five or six things of like giving directions, telling them if you feel triggered, asking for what you want, you know, giving positive feedback. And it's really those – I really like to divide it into those are the more in-the-moment things of you're not getting the pleasure that you're looking for, right? Back to freedom and pleasure. Uh, you're not getting – what you're looking for, it's not feeling quite right and doing those in the moment adjustments and then really everything else. And even, you know, when we say, I feel like a lot of us say in the bedroom and sometimes it could just be postcoital bed talk. I've worked with some couples where they feel most open and connected and free right after they've had sex. So even though they're still naked and technically in the bedroom or, you know, wherever they are, um, it's, they're able to have those conversations that they feel afraid to have anywhere Mm. else. And I'm, I'm okay. That's totally okay. That. Like if that's where you feel the most connected to them and open and willing to be vulnerable, then go for it. Yeah. That just, sounds really nice because yeah. you, you also have just released stress. Exactly. You had a great orgasm, hopefully. You got all those endorphins running and yeah. all the oxycodone. You know, I love it. I love Oxytocin, it. Oxytocin, not oxycodone. <laughs> not the drug. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. So there is a question I've been wanting to ask you. And I have been saving it so that we could do this here because okay. otherwise I think we'd talk for like five hours about this. We'd be okay. at Starbucks talking circumcision forever. Um, it's normal. But okay. it's one that I don't know much about. And mm-hmm. I know you heard me talk with the wonderful Don Sarah on her mm-hmm. podcast, Sex Gets Real. Mm-hmm. And she had a question from a listener about circumcision. And I shared that, you know, I don't know a whole lot about it. Like I know yeah. basic stuff. But I know that your take on it is, mm-hmm. you said, more nuanced. Yeah. So um, to kind of ground this, my background is, my academic background is in neuroscience and public health. So specifically the public health piece, I've spent a lot of time talking about circumcision and STIs and all those things. And so a lot of the research about circumcision really is done more in the developing world, where rates of HIV and STIs are much higher than they are in the U.S. And that is not to say by any means that rates of STIs and HIV are not problematic in the developed world and here in the U.S. either. But it means that you're looking at a fundamentally different sample of people. And so a lot of the research showing that circumcision does decrease HIV transmission is done in that developing world where it's a little bit of a different sample than you would if you did it here in the U.S. So, but like you were talking about with the headlines, like once the study comes out, a lot of times like science journalism, I have, I have so many issues with it because, again, hard science and then more sociological science, public health background. I'm just like, no, that's actually not what the study said. And it's not necessarily applicable to the U.S. And it may say that actually within the study mm. where it'll say these results are not applicable, applicable if yeah. I could talk, um, to everywhere else. And so it's really, for me, you know, it's really a highly personal decision. I think that it can have some benefit in those specific areas of the world. And also, you know, if, it, if it's a religious reason, and unfortunately, because of the way that sex research is not funded um, here, you know, a study looking at does circumcision impact pleasure, like those really haven't been done. Unfortunately, mm. there is a lot of anecdotal evidence. And I think that I don't I don't worship at the altar of science with a capital S and that, you know, if it's only if there's no hard data, then obviously it can't be true. Like, no, fuck that. But there is enough anecdotal evidence and stories from people saying that they do feel a difference and there is some sadness there. So I think for parents who are considering it and thinking about it, most physicians really push for it. And it's actually really sad. A lot of parents, not a lot, but at least some parents that I've worked with, um, I've worked in hospitals and in OB-GYN clinics and whatnot. So some of those parents really felt forced into it or like it was kind of just done because it's the norm is it's what the norm. was my impression basically it's it's done as the norm so really unless you ask for it and then a lot of times the physicians will really push for like no you really need to do this for this person's health for your baby with a penis's health like you need to do it for them so of course you want to take care of your kid like you're going to do what the healthcare provider is telling you to do and so i really just encourage you to like think think it through before 
you go in and, you know, is it important from a religious perspective? Is it, you know, does it have other meaning? Are you worried about the transmission of STIs? Do you, you know, just think about all the different things because there can be some health and pleasure impacts. I'm absolutely not saying there aren't. But again, just a lot of that research isn't done here in the U.S. or in the developed world where the rates, you just can't compare. Which is the where the anecdotal evidence is really important mm-hmm. because it's, it's, it's all just that have. there's no funding. Exactly. I mean, if it can't happen, you can't say that then it doesn't exist. I mean, science is really supposed to be – they scientists don't claim to know the answers. No. They know the best truth based on what they study. Mm-hmm. Like and, this is, yeah. yeah. And even for the healthcare providers who are pushing it, I don't, I want to be careful to also not demonize them because they're getting the research usually distilled down through something or other. And, you know, um, public health versus medicine, they are, to, they do approach the research a little bit differently. And so a lot of, like a lot of my classmates were also in medical school. And I really appreciate that because it gives them a little bit more of a holistic Medicine is much more one-on-one. So if you read the study and you see the raw numbers, you're like, okay, well, this must work. Yeah. Um, And so there's definitely, like, there's a need on all levels for better education and also just more research on what it does for the health and the pleasure impacts because, again, most of the time science won't touch pleasure, pun intended, I guess. Yeah, (laughs) totally accept that pun. And (laughs) I hope that changes. If there are investors out there. Can't wait. When I'm rich, I've already decided. I think a lot of of us, yeah. I'm like, when I'm rich, I will for sure endow. Yes, because there's so much to study and learn. Mm -hmm. And so many of the data that we do have, it's like almost archaic. Mm -hmm. You know, And so many of these big research studies, both here and throughout the world, um, in the developing world, if the researchers are based in the U.S., they're funded through NIH, they're funded through Congress. And so without getting into a political debate, because yeah. that's not the point, um, there I know that my professors in grad school would talk a lot about the difference when Congress switched over and how they suddenly had these studies that were running for years where the funding was cut off. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I wish y'all could see August's face right now. <laughs> I should have posted I'm a totally, I'm totally calling you on that. Um, <laughs> and so, there, you know, there definitely was that switch, and the funding that was already meager is now even less. Mm, that's so, really sad. For anyone who's independently wealthy and wants to fund this yeah, research. Yeah, I mean, this stuff's important. We need you. Like, we all, the world needs you. Yeah, it's so needed. Thank you. Yeah, that is so interesting and something that I'm going to keep, yeah. you know, doing my best to learn about. And, and it's also obviously important to know that whether you are circumcised or not, there's much pleasure to be had Absolutely. and wonderful ways to work with mm-hmm. what you got. And and if your if your partner is circumcised or not, same thing. You know, mm-hmm. it, 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 speaking of our partnerships, this term passionate monogamy makes me just feel all sparkly inside. Yay. I love I it. I wish I could say I made it up. I really did. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm going to give you some, some of the credit um, because what we hear is like. Monogamy is monotonous. Mm-hmm. And love the M and M. Yeah. So, so first, just tell us why that phrase is so important to you. That concept, the idea of passionate monogamy. Yeah, I think that oh, for many of for many people, the monogamy is the default. It's what we just do because that's what you're, you know, quote unquote, supposed to do. From who the heck knows? Society tells us this, and like, really, what is society? And so. All of these ideas, this idea of like marriage, bed, death, and once you get married, even if you're living together, once you get married, everything changes. And I don't want to discredit that these things do happen, but I think that they don't, they don't have to. And I know, and I know that they don't have to. Um, you can, you know, kind of keep the spark alive no matter how long you've been together. It does take a little bit more work because, you know, like Dr. Men- Megan mentioned, too many ends here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like she mentioned, like in the beginning, there is this, this these neurological processes that are happening where you just you punch literally drunk. totally punch drunk. You only see your partner and everything is them. You just you get this tunnel vision. And that wears off eventually because if it didn't, we would all just like burn out. Be high totally. all the time. Oh, yeah. It would just, it, you know, total burnout. <laughs> so for me, monogamy is really a choice. And by choosing that, I also I don't want to automatically then have to choose monotony getting bored, et cetera, these, these stereotypes that go along with it, or have my only other option be ethical non-monogamy or cheating as, as in a worst-case scenario. Um, not, I think you know, ethical non-monogamy is amazing for the right people. It's not for everyone, and mm-hmm. it's something that my partner and I currently, we don't choose that. Yeah. And it's something we talk about. It's a conscious choice. Yeah. Our monogamy is a conscious choice. And as a part of that conscious choice, it's okay. How can we keep things exciting? And I want to pass that on to other people because, again, this idea of (laughs) monotony. 
<laughs> it is a lot of like it's you it's know what it's like it's like the Muppets that monomena it's making me stumble too like the monotony of monogamy there you go yeah. I got it I got it out um, I don't want that to be all they know and all they think of because yeah. there is there is so much pleasure to be had when you're with someone that you know and trust so deeply sure. for a long period and it's just it has to be an active choice to continue choosing that passion and choosing that exploration and fun yeah so I know because so many of us it's kind of, like you said, automatic or what we think is like the option. Mm-hmm. Is it something that do you think people, more people should be talking about straight away? Oh absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely. I mean, there are people, a lot of my friends who are non-monogamous, you know, there's a lot of shame around. They never felt like they would only love one person or could only be with one person. And that gets hidden because... You know, it's taboo. Exactly. It's like it's you're a cheater is what people think. Exactly. And it's totally cheating and non-monogamy are two. So they're just such so different, different things. And yeah. you could cheat within a non-monogamous relationship as well, which is, I mean, talk about blowing some people's minds. They're like, wait, what, what are you talking about? Yeah. But I think that having those conversations from the start, I, I think and I hope that we'll start to see more of them going forward because there are more of our voices. We're starting to see non-monogamy as a movement, which is going to force people to be like, hey, this is how I am, and, you know, I'm not like that, so let's figure this out early on. I think it's just as important of a conversation as whether or not you want to have kids yeah, or get married or live in a certain place. Like, all of those deep, important conversations to have before you commit yourself to someone, which um, the argument can be made in many cases they don't happen. Yeah. I think monogamy should absolutely be one of them, and that commitment to, obviously, if sex is important to you, I'm making a lot of assumptions here, if that is an important part of your relationship. It's something that can be discussed up front. Absolutely. And it because it affects every single mm-hmm. step of your relationship moving forward, regardless Absolutely. of what happens Absolutely. with whoever else. And I just had this thought as you were speaking. You know, there can be really wonderful, healthy reasons for choosing either and really Absolutely. unhealthy reasons mm-hmm. for choosing. Like you could be non-monogamous because you feel you're not worthy of mm-hmm. a relationship, but that's really actually what you want deep down. Yeah. Or you could be in the monogamous relationship because you grew up being told you're only allowed to mm-hmm. be this way. Yeah. So really knowing yourself and mm-hmm. uh, and knowing it can change too, yeah. you know. Absolutely. I know many people who have had open marriages mm-hmm. and then they change their mind and it's, you know – our, our journeys are just yeah. so – they grow with mm-hmm. us, hopefully. And the definition of monogamy, too, I, f- I feel has really changed and grown. And it's – there is so much more wiggle room in there than people really give it credit for. And so whether it's, you know, sharing a fantasy about someone else with your partner, like to some people I can see where maybe they would think that's not monogamous. Mm-hmm. But to me, I'm like there are other ways – you know, just because you're with someone doesn't mean you automatically stop noticing all the beautiful people. In this and maybe world. it's really hot. Like, and it I could love be really it. hot. Exactly. Yeah, I love hearing that stuff. Exactly. It could be so hot to be like, oh, I saw this. I live in New York and like, oh my gosh, there's this guy on the train today and like, holy fuck. And like, I just wanted to blah, 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 right? Like, I'm not going to share that fantasy right now. <laughs> yeah, but, but hearing each other's fantasies exactly. is amazing. It's so it can be so sexy. And so I think that within what monogamy means, it's ever evolving and part of the passionate side of it and part of keeping it hot and sexy for you and your partner is in a way defining that for yourself consciously would be best, but also subconsciously and being like, oh, you know, I'm going to share this thing with you and then I'm going to see how you react and, oh, okay, well, like you had that fantasy too and like, oh, well, what kind of porn do you watch? And for some people, again, watching porn might not be considered monogamous. I say enjoy it. Enjoy it together. Enjoy it on your own if it's something you enjoy. Yeah, yeah. So it's looking within that monogamy and seeing where can we maybe push the traditional limits of monogamy that still feels yummy to us and sexy without feeling that it's transgressive or that it's, you know, over a line, crossing I love it. I love it. I feel like the time when people ideally would be talking about this is, is, well, all along, Mm -hmm. but also – you know, at the beginning of the relationship, that yeah. whole lovey-dovey, punch-drunk experience when we're totally <laughs> high and drunk and confused and living in sparkly land. Yay, and unicorn. then, yes, there they went. <laughs> and then, and knowing that you can get glimpses of that, you know, mm. but if years into the relationship when it does, because the routine's comforting, but it mm-hmm. can also become a little bit too kind yeah. of repetitive and you get into routine. So what are some of these ways when you first start to realize, like, mm-hmm. oh, I think we're kind of like missing the spark? Yeah. And 
I, I like to say that boring sex can be amazing because it does reflect a level of intimacy. And it's that it's that sex where you know, like, it's it's practically scripted at this point, right? Like, I go left, you go right, and then you go down, and I go down. And, like, it, it's really beautiful because you, it shows how deeply you know each other. I'm really all about really practical tips. I work with a lot of women in New York and other metropolitan areas. We all have these beautifully full lives where maybe we're not seeing our partner every day or seeing them for extended periods. So while there is a time and place for these more elaborate ways to keep that spark alive, I'm really about what are some simple tweaks to what you're already doing that you can easily add in. And even from a, to geek out a bit, even from a like behavior change perspective, because that's exactly what you're doing, you're doing a behavior change, you're learning a new habit, you want to start small. So, like, when I wanted to start flossing, I started literally with one tooth, which sounds so ridiculous. And that I is really believe. awesome. <laughs> I just admitted that. That's my that. kind of flossing. Yeah. And so I started with one tooth. And then once that became habit, I added a second and then until I did my whole mouth. So it took me, like, six months before flossing was a habit. But now it's a habit for life that even if I miss a day, it's fine. And so what are maybe – start with your favorite sex positions. What are some ways that you can tweak them that doesn't involve throwing out your back or being double-jointed or sitting mm-hmm. on your head? Like, what are some ways you could tweak them so that they feel a little different, but it's still within your wheelhouse of what you know and are comfortable with? And then from there, you can kind of keep building. What are some toys? Maybe you use a toy on your own. How could you bring it into the bedroom? Maybe you've never used toys. Now might be a good time to start. There are so many little areas where you can just make these tiny tweaks that don't involve, you know, an hour of practicing something every day that for many of us, you know, it's not that we're just busy doing shit. It's that we're, we really have all these fulfilling things and our relationship is one piece of that. It's not our whole lives. Okay, that is one of the coolest sex advice quips I've heard. Like I was, <laughs> I love that idea of a subtle shift of what you're already doing because so often what I hear is like these really extreme mm-hmm. like why didn't you try kink and BDSM exactly. when you know I'm kind of more on the vanilla side or mm-hmm. however you define it so but it's so hot yeah. when I could feel my girl boner happening when you were like <laughs> you imagine yes. like your position that you tend to do mm-hmm. and when when there's like this little subtle surprise of mm-hmm. something different that is so exciting to me I'm like whoa exactly I didn't even know you could do that and sometimes it's just like you know, arching your back more or like maybe you like getting spanked and now you're like, oh, well, let me add a flogger in as something different. It, it doesn't have to be any of these big giant changes. And this, again, this is one of those things that goes for any part of our lives. When you want to make change, some people, I will say, they are really good at like going, jumping all in and like going to the other end. And if that's you, fantastic. But for many of us, we need more of that like little gradual changes that feel like, okay, it's a Tuesday night and we have 20 minutes and we really need to get to sleep because we have to work in the morning and we're tired, but we really want to be intimate and getting breathless. (laughs) She's not acting it out. I'm not acting it out. I love talking about this. I do this when I do my workshops too. I'm like, like, oh my God, oh my God. I have to slow the fuck down. Um, And so, you know, you have this short amount of time. So how can you make that more exciting? What can you do that's just one small thing that you can do to change up what you're already doing and then it feels new and different and shiny and wonderful and it from a you know from a neuroscience perspective it does recapture some of that magic what did you call it the, what, the, the sparkly yeah the sparkly unicorn, unicorn wonder, wonderful <laughs> punch drunk world that's very scientific by yes, the way it's totally scientific um, it does capture some of that emotion and some of those neurotransmitter yeah. releases and hormone releases totally so. and I've read some interesting studies about novelty and mm-hmm. newness really sends those that those dopamine yeah. receptors going mm-hmm. and all this stuff so we actually can't so whether it's a sexual new activity mm-hmm. and sometimes it's sometimes it's like trying a new restaurant yeah. something really simple but mm-hmm. That's so practical. I love that. And you mentioned restaurants. Sometimes it's not even changing things in the bedroom. It can be, or sexually, it can be going on a new adventure together. So my partner, our favorite types of dates to do are just, I I call them our eat and explore dates, which is we literally will find a restaurant that sounds interesting and then explore the area around it. Now, granted, we're in New York, so (laughs) there's lots of areas to explore. Not always applicable. (laughs) My neighborhood would be like a big mountain, which (laughs) we love. I discovered some new stuff in your neighborhood. (laughs) Yes, you did. Thank you. I'm going there. Yes. Vegan muffins. Exactly. So, um, you know, what are in that, even doing that, it doesn't have to be sexually. It starts to get that dopamine firing and it gives that sense of novelty. And I know for us that when we do that, our sex tends to be better. Yeah. Because we've now had this new experience together and it bonds you in a different way. 
But again, also recognizing there is a place for those rituals and, you know, going to our, you know, calling sushi from the takeout place three blocks away and enjoying a night in with like a TV show that we like. There, there's room for both. Uh, they don't have to, you don't have to put one over the other, but you do need both. I love that. That is awesome. So I know that a lot of focus when we are feeling like things have grown a little bit mundane or routine sexually, sometimes the focus goes all there mm. because it's just like this intense part of the life that maybe you're not talking about or whatever. Yeah. And as they say, sex is not like the main focus until it's like a problem, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but I know that it can be completely unrelated. Like it could be the rest of your relationship too. And mm-hmm. I know you really – really encourage and cultivate self-care in your own life too. How does self-care play into all this? Yeah, I I like to, a lot of times that I've noticed both with me and, you know, again, the women that I work with, whether it's one-on-one coaching or with workshops, is that by the time your sex life starts to go, there are many other kind of warning signs, stop signs, little little prickles of information that have gone. And self-care can be number one, that just like that disappears and everything else kind of collapses with it. And I, I hate when people use the airplane metaphor of, like, put your own mask on first, but it's so true. It's one of those stereotypes that, like, makes me roll my eyes. We're like, oh, damn it, it's so freaking true. And so um, I've been dealing with a lot of health issues this year, and it's how do I navigate that and then literally some days have the energy to even try and be intimate physically, emotionally, any any way when my whole world is is focused on just my healing and my health. And self-care and self-love have become – such a big part of my day-to-day life and my relationship and it doesn't have to be big right like it doesn't have to be these huge things it can be as simple as for me it's as simple as letting myself sleep in a little bit or go to bed earlier now granted I have the freedom of making my own schedule so I realize that's not for everyone or learning to say no like learning to say no is one of the most divine acts of self-care and it's so fucking hard but it's like, you know, I don't really have the energy to go to this thing. I want to go to it, but I know if I go, it's just going to make me drained, and then I might take it out on my partner. We tend to be the meanest to those closest to us because we know exactly what buttons to push, and we have this sense that they're not going to ditch us, right, for the, for the most part. There's that comfort and intimacy mm-hmm. and trust and loyalty and understanding there, and so we tend to take that stuff out on them, and a lot of times I know for me – I'm lashing out at my partner and it's really because I'm mad at myself for not taking better care of myself. Mm. And we're at a point now, um, my health issues have been going on for about six years in various forms and we're kind of finally getting to the point where he'll calmly just be like, I know this isn't about me, what's going on Mm. with you? And it's, you know, the first time it was like, no, no, stop it. (laughs) Now I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. And let me take a step back and think about like, what can I do to nourish myself in the moment? Beautiful. I love that. So when you do have these sort of moments of tension where Mm -hmm. you're arguing or you're seeing things differently or, you know, shit comes up. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, it comes up. So normal. And moving forward from that, it sounds like you learned from this experience you just shared. Uh, How do we make the most of those experiences? Yeah. Oh. I we all need classes on how to be better fighters (laughs) or argue how to have better arguments. And I, I totally include myself in this category. It's really just an ongoing process of being, having a lot of compassion for each other. Um, back in high school, I have this memory that stuck with me. And so I, I went to a Catholic high school and, we, you know, we had religion. And there was one teacher who he was there and, like, two of his kids were there at the same time as me. And they had a family of, like, six. And they, they were in theater. And they were just – it was a, he was a really pretty big part of – the school life period, and then also a teacher. And he told us, I have no context for this, which is so weird. I just remember this one quote, no clue what we were talking about, but he always told us that when you're arguing, always try to have at least a hand on each other, be touching each other in some way. And like, again, being aware of like not an abusive way, but just have some sort of physical connection within a healthy relationship. And it's such a reminder and a way to ground you that this is still someone I love. Mm. And I, you know, we're in this together. And even though we're disagreeing, even though we're fighting, we're still here and we still have this connection. And it's, I mean, again, it's so, so hard. Yeah. And I don't, when it comes to arguing, like, you know, we all have our shit. That's, that's what relationships are. You have two people with their own baggage coming together and just doing their best to make it work. That's all any of us can do. That might sound really depressing to some people, but that's kind of the reality and learning how to navigate that together it can take a long time it could be really frustrating 
And you learn over time, hopefully, what to say and what not to say. So recently, my partner cut his finger uh, using a slicer in the kitchen. And it was one of those things where I knew he was feeling embarrassed about it. But And my first reaction was, I've told you a million times to use the protective, blah, 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 blah. right? I went straight to that kind of naggy place. And maybe even a year ago, I would have texted him like, well, why don't you use the protector? And this time I was like, you know what? Let me text one of my girlfriends who's married and be like, oh, my God, he just did this. And I've told him a million times and it's in the friggin' instruction mm-hmm. manual. And then that way I was able to kind of get that out. And when I texted him, it was a purely empathetic response. What do you need from me? You know, and that I was in a cab home. I couldn't do much. But like, what do we need to do? Are we going to the hospital and just jump straight into that empathy and strategy place? And you just, again, it's it's kind of trial and error and being aware, getting to know yourself better and how you tend to react and what your 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 touch points, your you know, your buttons tend to be and how you could react better. And for me, eating disorder recovery and therapy have been so, so helpful for that. I think everyone should be in therapy, quite frankly, for I think anything. It's so important. Yeah, we but get physical checkups regularly. Exactly. And, yeah. Like it's just those skills, a lot of them have been not even for my relationship, but learning again to know myself better and see what things tend to set me off mm-hmm. is helpful because more often than not, I will say, mm-hmm. I can now kind of catch it a little bit or sometimes, maybe we'll go sometimes, let's say 50-50. Yeah. <laughs> I can kind of catch like, oh, yeah, this is going to set me off. And no. also through therapy and going through different struggles, we also learn that from the struggle, you know it's a growth opportunity, mm-hmm. you know? And there's still times where you're like, oh, my God, this yeah. means my relationship's over. Oh. We've talked about this. Like, yeah. if you Basically every fight, I'm like, I'm ready. I'm like trying. Yeah, totally making plans <laughs> and we're over and where am I going to live? Oh, yeah. Like yeah. all the time. Yeah. And then, and then you get to this new place and mm-hmm. it's like, hey, we're actually better off for going yeah. through this together. Yeah. And it sucks. I mean, it would be amazing if we could just – get to that new place without going through the pain. (laughs) Fast forward button, please. (laughs) And I think, you know, there are definitely skills that people can learn in advance to help ease the process. And there are, you know, again, therapy is great, learning better communication, learning how to fight better. Those are all things. But we don't live in a society that values those. So for most of us, we really have to learn on, quote unquote, on the job in that relationship And, you know, there are things that my partner and I disagree on and fundamentally we disagree on. I don't think that means we have a bad relationship. I mean, it's just it's who we are and we can have empathy and understanding and compassion for each other and recognize that we might always, you know, bicker about that. I think within any relationship, there's always one or two things that you just kind of keep coming back to. And I kind of almost look at that as like a cutesy slash annoying relationship thing that we have. Like, oh, we're always going to argue about X. Okay, yeah. I may just accept it and kind of laugh about it a little bit. Like, yeah. here we go again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> arguing about the dishes or arguing about who cooked dinner. You know, those little couple things. I try to make them into something that's that's really a sign of intimacy and connection versus this, this argumentative totally. break point. Beautiful. I love that. So I know the last few days you did something incredibly oh. cool. <laughs> And it kind of like rubbed off on me. It's contagious. So if this sounds intimidating to you, just get someone else to do it and hang yeah. out with them. But <laughs> you did a digital detox. You did. Tell us what that was, was and why you did if it. Going to bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, I basically did no TV and no phone. I'm actually here in LA for a couple of weeks, and I didn't bring my laptop with me. So I was at a conference, and I was totally all on the social media, and then. I just put my phone away for the last two days, and I've, I've done this before. I used it very seldomly. There are a couple of like, oh, I need to find directions. That's important, or I need to get an Uber. But for the most part, I didn't check social. I didn't check text messages. Text messages. <laughs> Freudian slip. Or sex messages. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even come back to those. Got to, got to talk to the part boy about that. Um, so no social, no email, no text messages, and really – I only really use my phone for my meditation apps because that's where they are. Um, so for meditating and for an alarm, and that was really it, and then a handful of like once for directions. And I did it because I was finding that I love social and, and I love technology. I don't think it's the bane of all human relationships, but I do think it's, it does it can have an impact. And for me, I was getting to the point where I was actually using my social in a way that I used to use food as a binge. And I'm really grateful that I have a therapist who wasn't afraid to call me out on this currently. And it was, I mean, my partner and I would be home at night and I just, I couldn't not have my phone in my hand 
or I would lose hours of my day and be like, whoa, how the f- where the fuck did the last You're hour like go? You're like having a threesome and it wasn't. Exactly. Yeah. It was not a pleasure. <laughs> not, a fun, not the fun kind. No, and the vibrations on phones aren't even that good. So, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and I was really feeling that I was just too reliant in a really unhealthy way. We all, Many of us joke about being addicted to social, and it was for me – I was in this like trance state where I didn't know where time went. And that's, again, it's for me with my eating disorder when I would binge, it was that same exact feeling. Yeah. And I, again, you kind of start to see these signposts along the way with whether it's, you know, arguments within a relationship or your health or whatever, especially with mental illness. And you learn like once you, you fall in and then you learn like you see it and you still fall in and then you see it and you're like, okay, maybe I'll try to go around and maybe you still fall in and then you just take another fucking street. Right, you just go somewhere else. I don't know. That's a poem. I don't know where it's from, and I didn't do a good job of quoting it. <laughs> but um, with this, I was, I was like, I can't be on it. And I'm thankful my partner knew. He said, "Let me know when you're going off the grid, and send me a number where I could reach you if there's an emergency." And it was amazing. I found I was so much more present and so much more focused. And it, it was also hard. I noticed all the times I wanted to reach my phone, and it was usually when something emotional was coming up or I was bored. And I'm like afraid. I think a lot of us are afraid of being bored now. And boredom is really the space where creativity comes. I, I just finished reading, as August knows, I just finished reading Sarah Bralis' book, Sounds Like Me. And there's a quote in it about, I found the best songwriting or writing or ideas or creativity, period, comes when I leave space for it. And my digital habits were just crowding out everything else. I couldn't walk down the street without my phone in my hand. And it just, it, it needed to change, so. I admire that so much, and it, it seems was terrifying. Like it was, it seems like it really helped you though already. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't even take like a super mm-hmm. long amount of time, and you learn so much about you just become so much more aware. You really do. And the chatter every time I wanted to reach for my phone, I just wrote, and I, I've done more writing in the last two days than I've basically done all year. So instead <laughs> of having just like a phone full of you know posts and whatever, mm-hmm. you have actual like journals full yeah. of stuff, and you've had epiphanies. Yes, I totally and, have. And cleared space, which also mm-hmm. is so important for our relationship with yeah. self, our relationship with another Others, person, yes. our sex life, holy crap. Like yeah. if we're completely, you know, hooked into the network mm-hmm. all the time. Like I try not to use my phone in the evening, yeah. for example, because I will just sit there and like – Yeah, no phones in the bedroom is a big general – there's not a lot of like rules that I like to give out, but no phones or no phone use, at least since many of them of us alarm do use clocks, them for alarm yeah. clocks. Like not having your phone on and using it in bed is can be really hard, but it's so good to kind of keep that as a separate space yeah. for sleep and sex only. And then you have more sex. It's not. so true. Yeah. And I love one self-care practice that I cultivated in the last year or so is instead of waking up and jumping straight to my computer, because, mm. you know, I work from home and people yeah. do this anyway, even before they go to the office, yeah. before I go to my phone or my laptop or anywhere, I realized when I would go on vacation I never went to my phone first mm. because life was so cool. So I would like go sit on the balcony or sit in the tub yep. or lay on the bed and just lounge. And I was like, life should feel like that, mm. you know? So now I do I do that. And sometimes it's just opening up the patio door, mm-hmm. listening to like the air come in yeah. and the rustling leaves. And it just sets a tone of like mm-hmm. it's not helter-skelter. Yeah. And I was, I was actually stressed this morning that I had to check my phone because – of my next accommodations, I had to be in communication, right? Like there was, there was no choice. <laughs> I could not be like, hey, just want to make sure all the details. And I, I was actually pretty stressed about even having to check it because I realized that, again, for someone who who talks about and built is building her whole pleasure empire on this idea of freedom in pleasure, my I wasn't using my phone in a way that felt yummy anymore and that felt pleasurable and that brought me joy. I was using it as an escape, and so. I, I have deleted Facebook off of it. I don't know if that will stay. <laughs> TBD, I'll, ch- I'll let y'all know. Um, <laughs> but I just, you know, I was like, oh, what's going to be waiting for me? Are there going to be all of these demands and requests and like, ugh. And I was really lucky that most people saw that I was doing this and knew in advance. I actually invited some friends. Uh, no one took me up on it, but I did invite some people to do it. I did kind of accidentally <laughs> yeah, partly. You did, you did. I did like part-time, like half my brain. Yeah. You, did, you did good. <laughs> you did wonderful. And um, so most people knew, and I kind of came back to just some fun messages that didn't require for those. I, I know for me, I always I look at a text and I think it needs a response, even if it's just like, hey, here's a great article. There is there is the free the speedo article <laughs> that several people Which is sent fabulous. Me. It was amazing. Go look it up. <laughs> and... Um, and that just felt really yummy to have, like, here's something that we don't need response from you. And 
just enjoy. Like this yeah. will just make you laugh because it's and the a world bunch of cute Olympic swimmers. Goes on. Like <laughs> we don't need to be answering mm. every single thing, every single moment. That's yeah. huge. That's and huge. I did miss the thing I missed the most was talking to my partner. Yeah. And that was nice to be like, oh, that's right, it's a phone for communicating. And I really did miss chatting with him in the evening and I think for the rest of the day after I get to my next destination, that's probably how I'll use it is just to talk with him later. And good, yeah. good burst of extra yeah. appreciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. Freedom and pleasure. I just I love the phrase and I love it's almost like a mantra for you. Yeah, I, really I see is. that you use it so often and so well. All the time. Before we wrap this up, which mm-hmm. like we could talk for days, we have been. We, have, we actually have. We should have just like been recording for like the last three days. We, really we could have had like twenty-seven hours of endless chatter. Um, what's one <laughs> bit of advice you would recommend in in the area of freedom of pleasure? Play and explore with what brings you pleasure, so that you then know what to ask for. So much of the time we're told, ask for what you want, ask for what you want. And like, what happens if you don't know what you want? Or what if what you want it changes? Because it does for all of us. And so, and, and approach it, I'm, I specifically use play and explore. Approach it with that mindset. You're playing, you're exploring. It's supposed to be fun, right? Adult toys are called toys for a reason. I say that anytime I do a sex toy party or a workshop. Ex- approach it with that kind of childlike playfulness. And just have fun with it, figuring out what brings you pleasure, and then have more freedom. I love it. So for the many, many people out there who are like, oh, my God, I love her. How can I learn more? How can I work with her? How can I read more? Where can we find your stuff? Yeah, so uh, I am at passionbykate.com, and it is K-A-I-T. And that spelling is especially important for social media because – Perks of spelling your name different means that I have the same username on everything, which is really rare these days. So it's Passion by Kate on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Pinterest and YouTube and Snapchat. I think that, <laughs> like, is that sick? Again, did a tech detox for a reason. Um, and Facebook is where I share, I share a lot of articles, Snapchat. I do a lot of behind the scenes with, like, my date nights and nothing graphic. I don't go there personally. But um, it's a lot of behind the scenes into how I do my self-care and how my partner and I keep the spark alive all the time. And then Instagram's a lot of self-care stuff. Wonderful. Well, thank you for being here. And also, thank you for who you are. I mean, you truly are one of my very favorite people. And feeling is mutual. It has been a magical time. And I just, even aside, if I didn't know you personally, I'm so grateful that you exist in the world and your message Mm -hmm. is just gorgeous. Thank you so much. This is too. Thank you. For more Girl Boner fun, stop by my website, augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org. For occasional extras, be sure to sign up for email updates. If you are digging Girl Boner Radio, and I hope you are, thank you, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes and leave a simple review while you're there. Thank you so much for listening, and have a beautiful Girl Boner embracing week. 